you probably could have shortened this book by 400 pages and it would have been okay. And you maybe. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to be read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning. This podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello and welcome to the Keep It Fictional podcast, the book podcast from the Port Moody Public Library. I'm here with my book friends, Corrine, Virginia, and Sadie, and I'm Al. So today... We are talking about books that intimidate us. So what makes a book intimidating? Is it length? Is it topic? Is it something else? I guess we'll find out today from our lovely book friends. So today I am reading a book that has intimidated me for years And the reason it intimidated me is that it's a classic, possibly the classic of the magical realism genre. And as a big fan of fantasy and magical realism, I've always known it's something I should, but it always seemed like such an undertaking that I always found reasons to avoid it. So today I am reading a book that starts in an iconic way. Many years later, As he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. With that iconic line, one of the most famous in literature, the book that I chose today begins. And that is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's the story of the Buendia family, starting with Jose Arcadio Buendia and his wife Ursula and the story of the town of Macondo in which they live. We first meet the young family in Macondo, which is isolated from the rest of the world, except for yearly visits from bands of Romani, one of whom, Melchiades, is a particular friend to Jose Arcadio. Jose Arcadio becomes obsessed with the technologies that the Romani bring with them, sure that each one, from magnets to alchemy, are the key to unlocking a better future. The town of Macondo is founded by Jose Arcadio Buendia after he and his wife have to leave their hometown due to Jose Arcadio killing Prudencio Aguilar with a spear for having insinuated that he was impotent. Haunted by the ghost of Prudencio, the couple finally decides to leave their hometown and find somewhere else to settle, along with some of their friends. On the journey, Jose Arcadio has a dream of a city of houses with mirrored walls and a voice telling him that it is called Macondo. Taking the dream as a sign, Jose Arcadio convinces the others to found a village with him, and the village of Macondo is born. From here, we follow the Buendia family down several generations through civil war and the founding of an American banana plantation. The dream of the reflective walls of Macondo is realized metaphorically, with the state of Macondo reflecting the state of the Buendia family. There are traits and names that carry across generations, creating an impression that time is not so much linear as it is cyclical. 
And at the end of the novel, it is revealed that Melchiades left a manuscript behind that is the story of the Buendia family, the founding of Macondo, and the eventual fate of the family, with the last member of the family being blown away and destroyed by a hurricane along with the manuscript, just as he finishes decoding it. I will admit this was a difficult read for me. The story feels like a spiral with elements coming back over and over again, slightly changed. It doesn't help that the characters are all very similarly named, with successive generations of Jose Arcadios, Aurelianos, Amarantas, and Omidioses, all distinct from each other, but blurring together at the edges. The opening line, really the opening paragraphs, really show the way that this book plays with time, blurring history into myth and myth into the personal. The story of the banana plantation and the massacre that follows really plays with this as well. The people in the town after the massacre refuse to acknowledge it, meaning that events within the novel can almost feel fictionalized within the context of the world they take place in. I'm glad I read this book, but I think it revealed to me that I'm not as much of a character reader as I thought. I need a bit of plot to help me find the line through the book to feel connected to it. Like, there is plot in this novel, but overall it's a study of several characters or a study of family as a character or a study of a town as a character. It's fascinating, but it's certainly not a light read. I think I'll need to read it again to get a better handle on it and better handle on how I feel about it. But for now, I would recommend 100 Years of Solitude to anyone who likes a story that plays with time, to anyone who really likes a strong character development or character examination, to anyone who likes Fiona books, where not much happens, but also a lot happens, and to anyone who likes magical realism and wants to see one of the foundational examples of the genre. So now I think we're going to go to Kareem. Welcome to the dark side, Al. Where plot is important and characters don't matter. Weirdly enough, I did choose a book that is, I think, a character study. Stuff happens, but I had to read the Wikipedia article to really, like, track what was happening because I was a little confused. So when I got the topic of a book that intimidates me... I thought it was a really interesting topic. And Al, I like how you said like it could be like the length of it that intimidates you. It could be the subject matter. For me, it was the author who intimidates me because they are an intellectual heavyweight. And I'm more of like a featherweight class. And also they are a Nobel Prize winner for literature. And that like strikes fear into my heart. Of all the Nobel Literature Prize winners, I think I could probably only take Bob Dylan. And that's not just because like he's an elderly old man, but I feel like I could best him in a feat of strength because he lacks like that innate fire and anger. I feel like he's just too like frail and wispy that I I, I could take him. Someone who I absolutely could not take is Toni Morrison. I feel like Toni Morrison would destroy me in the ring. And she kind of destroyed me with this book. So she is an author who I have long since admired and never read. So this is kind of like the Mark Twain quote where he says a classic is something everyone wants to have read and no one actually reads. And this is kind of the case. I have watched a lot of interviews with her. I have um, seen her on TV and I really admire her, but just had never actually sat down and read one of her 
books. And that's what authors get famous for, writing books. So don't be afraid. But I was super afraid. And I will admit, I probably didn't choose the most famous of her works to start with. So as a reading pathway, I would absolutely not recommend starting with this book. I think you should probably go with, as Virginia suggested earlier, with maybe Beloved or The Bluest Eye. I went with The Song of Solomon because the cover was blue and that was comforting. And it starts with someone trying to throw themselves off a rooftop. So I was like interested and intrigued. So this is a book with a lot of pages. It is about, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce anyone's names correctly, Macon, Macken. They're all kind of biblical names and that I, I don't have that expertise. Macon, Milkman, Dead, the third. And it kind of chronicles his birth all the way to potentially his death. Growing up in Michigan in what I think is the 1930s, pretty sure. It was a National Book Critics Circle Award winner and is, you know, was cited in her winning of the Nobel Prize. It contains 100% more familial incest than I was expecting. Uh-huh. So if that is not your thing, this is absolutely not the book for you because it's it's really there. Yeah. So it starts with that insurance agent, Robert Smith, who is a Black insurance agent who is kind of both reviled and feared within the community because of what he represents. He is kind of a personification of death. He sells death and protection against it. And one day he announces via a little note on his door that he can fly and he will be jumping off of the roof and flying away. All of the neighbors, because TV has not been invented yet, go over to see this man potentially jump off a roof. And one of the people that is watching is Ruth dead. She is very pregnant. And as he jumps, she goes into labor. Now, in the kind of turmoil of this man attempting to jump off of a roof, she manages to kind of talk her way into the hospital, which has thus far never accepted a Black patient. Even though Ruth's father was a very well-regarded doctor, no Black patients are actually in loud inside of the hospital until the chaos of this moment, the chaos of Macon's birth kind of allows that to happen. So where does the name Milkman come from? So Ruth decides to breastfeed Macon until he is quite old, which is observed by one of the big-mouthed neighbors who goes around telling everyone about this, and then he earns the name Milkman. As a young person, he grows up kind of alienated. His father is a landlord and cares only about money. He loathes his wife, whom he suspects of having an affair with her father. And he has two... Oh, boy. Sorry. He has two sisters that he are quite a bit older than him because, of course, the father hates the mother and she had to trick him using herbs to having a son. It's complicated. And this all kind of revolves around Macon discovering his family history and the idea of this kind of family inheritance. So obviously his own birth, his own youth, his own parents have their own secrets, which are slowly kind of eating them up inside. But it's also about him discovering his father's father's story and kind of reconnecting with his father's sister, 
Pilate, again, it's a Bible thing, I don't know, who is this kind of bootlegger, conjure woman with a kind of like mysterious past who lives in the same city, but her and her brother are very estranged. She has her daughter Reba and then her granddaughter Hagar, who then Macon has a relationship with, even though it's his cousin. It's also about the larger historical forces at this time. Uh, Morrison has said that this is kind of like a tribute to the Black arts movement. And in fact, Macon's best friend, Guitar, kind of gets involved in politics and social justice of that time, trying to kind of enact revenge on the white people who are indiscriminately killing Black people all over the country. Morrison has said that this is a book about a man who learns to fly and all that that means, how we discover who we are and how important and truly exciting that journey is. If I have done a really poor job in explaining what this book is, I can accept that criticism in that this is a book where a lot of upsetting things happen and everyone is terrible. Everyone is truly just a pugnant person that you kind of wish they weren't. But the really wonderful thing about Morrison's writing, which is, again, this is the first time that I've ever kind of come in contact with it, is that it is very compulsively readable. Even though I I wanted everyone gone, I could not stop reading. It is her mastery of the language. I can absolutely see why she she won the Nobel Prize and why she's in such high esteem. She writes and crafts a sentence in a way that I really haven't seen anyone do before. It, it really is spectacular that it pulls you in on this journey and these people that, you know, you you both hate, but you you also really want to know what happens to them and why they are and what they're going to do. And there are some some kind of lectures or, or or speeches in this that are that are so impactful that I think I'll be thinking of for a long time, talking about people's lives and people's history and how they are the way they are. Even though, again, I've done a really poor job in kind of explaining what this book is, but the bare bones of it are not really important. What I think is, is the overall arching themes and the writing. It's going to knock your socks off. So do I think you should start Toni Morrison with The Song of Solomon? No. No, 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 no. I don't think that's a good idea. If you're going through a reading pathway, I think you should probably start with one of her other more well-known books. And I think I actually will because the writing was so powerful and so good that I really want to see that all kind of congeal into like a, a masterwork of hers, like a masterpiece that she's created. So yeah, I, I think it was intimidating, I think for all of the right reasons to just kind of come up across like a true genius is something that you don't see a lot and you don't get the opportunity to kind of like come into contact with that. So I'm really thankful for the topic and I'm going to be um, very upset for quite a few days after reading it. So thank you. Thank you, Kareen. We are Nobel Prize winner reading buddies on this episode. Now is time for our existential question of the episode. So Today's existential question has to do with books that intimidate you, but maybe weren't as intimidating as you thought when you got to them. So yeah, what is a book that intimidated you when you were going to read it, but when you read it, you found it to be actually much more accessible than you thought? Difficult question. I can go first. For me, I think it was The Count of Monte Cristo. Like it's it's a big book. It's a classic. It's a very big book. But when I read it, I just found that the prose was so 
engaging. The story is really a lot of fun. If you enjoy a revenge romp and kind of a power fantasy. And it was just, it was very readable and I really enjoyed it. It was back in high school when I had my goal of reading one classic every summer. Yeah, it was, it was a lot more fun than I thought it would be. I'll say like most of the classics I've read, I've been like surprisingly pleasurable reads. Jane Austen, like I was so intimidated as a high schooler. And then I was like, wait a minute, this is just like hot goss. I can do this. I can do this. I think the one that I was most pleasantly surprised by is Charlotte Bronte, who's one of my favorite writers. And I love Jane Eyre. I was shocked about how readable it was and how angry she was. Um, because often in Victorian literature, you know, especially as a woman writer, you're you're writing quite demurely, but she was furious. And it was it was such a delight to kind of see that through line of anger just really pop out. So I, I found it very readable. Uh, Wuthering Heights, I still haven't gotten through. I think for me, every single time I find an author that I really like, and then the second book that I have to read, that's always to me intimidating because I'm just like, oh my gosh, what if it sucks? Like, what am I going to do? So that to me is always intimidating. And then like also any kind of big series, this is like the standards. Everybody needs to read it. Is it going to be good? But the one that I can think of is a book that I talk about on the show, Life Ceremony by Sayada Murata. Because that was after I read Earthlings and I hated Earthlings with a passion. Hated it. I don't understand the point of that book. And then I was told that I need to go read Life Ceremony. I'm just like, oh, I don't want to. But Liz was like, no, I think you really enjoyed it. And of course, Liz is always right. Like, what am I, like, why am I doubting? So yeah. Um, so when I read, I'm like, okay, okay. All right. Maybe, maybe there's some redeeming quality to this author. Um, so that was intimidating because I did not want to start it because I don't know what is going to happen. And I don't want to repeat of Earthlings. So yeah. I still haven't been brave enough to read life ceremonies because Earthlings, like, it's so awful. There's one book that was recommended to me by a colleague, and it took me about five times to start it. And I don't know what it was that the the beginning of it really intimidated me. And then once I got into it, I absolutely loved it and like devoured the whole series. And it's Shadow of the Wind by Carlos uh, Ruiz Zafon. And like, I absolutely love it now, but it took me so many times to get into it. I don't know exactly what it was. Maybe like the first, like live the first page, I think is what I would struggle with. So maybe that first page is really intimidating. I'm not sure. And then I also find that I, a lot of things that intimidate other people, like, class like classic classic classics um like greek classics and shakespeare i quite enjoy so i like i, I love a good uh, i love a good scottish play reading or like a nice trojan women antigone kind of kind of story so <laughs> see those ones are not not as intimidating as, as some people think they are you just have to get into the groove and read read it as if you would speak it yeah i definitely find that with plays um Reading it as if you would speak it is great. And The Baki by Euripides is one of my favorite plays. So I definitely feel you on that, Sadie. Now let's return to our intimidating books. Let's see what Sadie has for us today. Okay. All right. This is going to be a big one. So the book that I chose is uh, intimidating because of its length. It's also intimidating because if you kind of look into what it is about, it kind of seems like a very boring subject that you wouldn't really want to read about. So you question, why did this person write 1,100 pages on this subject that nobody really wants to read about? 
But this book was recommended to me actually many, many years ago by someone that I worked with at the YWCA. And she even gave me her copy of the book, which I still have. Yeah, I still have it because I never read it. Still still didn't read that copy of it. No, it's in a box somewhere. I listened to the audiobook for this one, <laughs> which was 41 hours long. It's a good, uh, good, solid afternoon or 10 of reading. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it's a long one. It's a long one. And this is actually quite a different book than this author up until this point that this author had written. And this came out, I think, in the 80s originally. And before then, um, this author had written thrillers. They'd kind of written these sort of not very literary kind of thriller, fun kind of things that people can get into really easily, read really quickly and get over. And it's, it was interesting. So the audiobook and I think the actual book has a preface from the author and kind of explaining his process to get to writing this book. And it kind of just came from his interest in cathedrals and uh, the fact that one day he decided that he really liked cathedrals. And so he would go on tours of England to see all of these cathedrals. And then he started thinking about how a cathedral would be built and who might be involved in the building of a cathedral. So yes, at the basis of this story, it is about building a cathedral. And that is the through line pretty much for the entire book. However, that is not what the story is about. So the story is about all of the characters who come together and the lives that they live that surround the building of this cathedral. So the book that I read is The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. And it starts in, it's a, it's a medieval story, so it starts in the year 1120. And it starts with the sinking of the white ship. Now, the white ship was a ship that traveling from France to England, and it carried the only male heirs to the English throne. And in 1120, the ship sank, killing everybody on board, including all male heirs to the British throne. One person did survive, and this person's name was Jack Sherberg. A couple months later, Jack Sherberg is being hung because he stole a chalice from the cathedral in the Priory of Kingsbridge. He claims he did not do it, but there are eyewitnesses that say they saw him steal this, and so he must be hung. As he is being hung, a woman calls out from the crowd that is formed or in the town square. And she calls out to the, the people who are up on the stand with Jack Sherberg. And the people who are up on the stand, there is a priest, there is a knight, and there is a monk. And these three people are the people who have accused Jack of stealing this chalice and who have given eyewitness statements saying that they witnessed this. Now, this woman knows that this is not right. And so in Jack's final moments, she yells out a curse, cursing the town and cursing these three men for what they have done. She then runs out of the village, never to be seen again. Our story now jumps ahead. And it jumps ahead to the year 1135. And it first of all follows Tom Builder. Now, the book is a bit interesting because you meet the characters in more or less the present day. And then you hear all of their histories. 
And so there'll be like one thing that will be mentioned and then that will be a jumping off point for them to tell you everything that they have gone through up until this point in time to get them to this point in time. So currently we are in the year 1135. We meet Tom, the builder, who is a mason. And Tom and his son, Alfred, are building a house. And they're building a house for a lord, Lord Percy Hamley, for his son, William Hamley, who is going to be wed to Aliena, who is the daughter of a duke. And this is going to be the house that they are going to live in. So they're almost done the house when somebody rides up and tells them that they have to stop building right away. Aliena has refused to marry William. And so they no longer need the house. Aliena had a promise from her father that he would never force her to marry somebody that she did not want to marry. Now, looking at the fact that this is the 1100s, that's quite uh, quite different from what would usually happen. So Tom now realizes that he's out of work. Tom does not know what he's going to do. He has a son, Alfred. He has a daughter, Martha. And he's just found out that his wife, Agnes, is pregnant again. He needs to be able to work so that he can feed his family. Up comes William Hamley, the disgraced son of Percy Hamley, who has just been turned away and turned down by Aliena. He is absolutely furious. He does not care for anybody. He almost runs over Tom's daughter, Martha, on his horse. And he rides up very, very angry and takes all of his anger out on Tom, who is now telling him that he has to pay Tom and his workers. Eventually, William decides that he will do this. Tom and his family go on their way. Now, Tom has always had a dream. Tom has dreamed of building a cathedral. Tom has wanted to build a cathedral since he worked on the building of a cathedral once. And during that time, he was not the master builder. He was just a mason. And he learned that he did not know a lot, but that he would like to know more. Yes, he did not really know what he was doing. But from there, he decided that he needed to learn how to know more and how to build this cathedral. So Tom takes his family on the road to try and find a town who is building a cathedral who will give him work. So Tom and his family walk and they 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 keep walking and they cannot find work anywhere. And Agnes is getting more and more pregnant and they don't know what they can do. They have a pig, so they know that they'll be able to sell that in the biggest town. But other than that, they have no idea what's going to happen. Now, I'm not going to explain all of Tom's story because it would probably take 41 hours to get there. But that is one part of our story. The other part of our story follows Prior Philip. And Prior Philip is a monk. And he and his brother were orphaned when they were kids, when English soldiers invaded Wales and killed his parents. Him and his brother were taken in by the monastery and raised in the monastery. His brother has left the monastery and become a priest, and Philip has now become a monk himself and is the prior of a small little monastery in the forest. One day, Philip's brother arrives at the monastery, and this is probably about a year after we meet uh, first meet Tom. And Philip's brother arrives at the monastery with a baby. Nobody knows where this baby came from. It was left in the forest, crying, abandoned. And Philip's brother found the baby and brought it to the monastery so that they could care for it. 
So Prior Philip decides that he is, in fact, going to do that. He's going to take this baby and care for it. Now, on the same visit, Philip's brother also brings very, very important and very dangerous news. The person that he works for is going to betray the crown. Now, ever since the white ship sunk and there has been no male heir to the English throne, there has been conflict. There has been fighting for thrones over who is the rightful heir. Is it Maud, who was the king's daughter, but a woman? Or, yes, Corrine saying yes, yes. <laughs> or was it Stephen, who I think was the king's brother? I think it was the king's brother. Or maybe uncle. So, yeah, so there has been fighting. And currently, Stephen is on the throne. And Stephen gets the support of the church. And Philip's brother has just discovered that Maud is planning an uprising and the brother's employer is on her side and they're going to take over the crown from Stephen. He says that Philip has to tell someone. He has to go and tell someone because if Maud is on the throne, they do not know if the church will get the support that they need. So Philip goes into the town of Kingsbridge to try to tell the bishop there. Now, I'm going to, again, once truncate this story a little bit. So <laughs> Philip arrives in Kingsbridge, tells the person who's just under the bishop about this plan. Kind of through his telling of this plan, a lot of things start to happen. So the information is passed on to the Hamleys, who then invade this duke's castle, uh, capturing the duke and killing a whole bunch of people, taking over, leaving Aliena, who was the Hamleys almost daughter-in-law, without a house, without a family, without a father. And then also this leads to Philip becoming the prior of Kingsbridge and deciding that he's going to build a cathedral. So as you can see, we're only probably like maybe uh, 200 pages into the book at this point. So anyway, so that is kind of the basis of the story. It follows all of these characters who eventually come to join each other in Kingsbridge at the building of this cathedral. Tom and his family, Prior Philip, Aliena, they all meet kind of in Kingsbridge after a very long, hard road to get there. That is sort of the theme of this book is as soon as you think that something good is going to happen for the people that you want something good to happen for, something horrible happens to them instead. I found myself kind of groaning and seeing like, are you kidding? Again? Like something terrible is going to happen again? <laughs> like... So that is sort of the, the basis of the book. I'm not doing a very good job explaining it because it is such a long book and there are so many different moving parts. But it basically kind of includes the drama of life in the Middle Ages, of kind of what it is to be involved in political drama and not really want to be involved in political drama because you're just a, a monk who doesn't believe in drama. <laughs> it was a lot. It was definitely a lot. Content warning, there is a lot of violence. There is a lot of rape. There is violence to animals as well as violence to people. There are very explicit sex scenes described, both consensual and not. So it does have a lot of content warnings that I, I would like to put out there. It involves a lot of truly terrible people that maybe these people existed in the 1100s. I don't know. I'm not sure. It was engaging because, because of the drama that was kind of included, but it definitely had the feeling that enough was enough. and you probably could have shortened this book by 400 pages and it would have been okay. And you maybe could have cut out some of the rape scenes and it would have been okay. So yeah, I, I think if you're looking for like a true historical book, it does follow 
the history of that time, I think, quite closely. At the time, I was looking up like the Wikipedia of like succession of the throne to see exactly how it all went. And it does follow it uh, pretty precisely. And it does tell this fictional story within this framework of of a very um, real time. Um, So if you like something that has a huge base in history, if you do like something that has a lot of drama in it, if you're okay with reading kind of some not great violent and uh, sexual violence uh, scenes, then I would I would recommend it. I think that a lot of people absolutely loved it. It was, I think, one of his most popular books. It ended up being, I don't know if that's just because it was such a remove from what he had written before that. There is a second one, World Without End, I think. I don't think I will be reading it at this time. (laughs) But the nice thing about it is that you don't have to. So it does sort of wrap things up in this story. And and I don't think you necessarily have to read the next one. Um, So yeah, so that is The Pillars of the Earth. I don't know if it gets a resounding plus from me, but... Um, if if that sounds like it's something you would like, I highly recommend uh, carving out 41 hours of your time and reading The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Thank you, Sadie. I did not know that Ken Follett wrote thrillers before he wrote his historicals. I just knew about the historicals. So that is fascinating. Finally, we have Virginia. So Virginia, what book intimidated you? I'm interested to find out. First of all, Sadie, kudos to you. I don't know how you, like, in every way, the 40 hours. I don't think I could have done it if it wasn't an audiobook. I don't know if I could have, I could have read it. Oh, all right. So for me, sort of similar to Elle and also Corinne, when I think intimidating, I kind of went back again thinking about a particular author because they are such a literary giant. And this is unlike Corinne and Elle's picks. Uh, this person definitely, I think a lot of people feel like has been cheated out of a Nobel Prize. They all think that he should have a Nobel Prize, but he didn't. But this is an author that whose name is like synonymous with a style of writing, whose name has been turning to an adjective to describe the kind of story that you can expect and whom all your other authors, your favorite authors cite as an inspiration and that they talk about how his work influenced theirs. And whenever I see this person's name in a book blurb, instantly pique my interest. The book will tend to be something that I would more likely like because I think sometimes a premise can be helpful, but it doesn't really tell you what the style of book is about. And so it could be a really, really boring story, but give it say, oh, it's, but isn't it the style of this particular person or this other person? Then it always gives you a big, better sense of like what this story would be. So, and because this author has such a strong brand that for me, it's like kind of somebody that I'm like, okay, I think I, I think I would like this book. But the silly thing is that I've actually never read a book by this particular author, but because their style is so well known that you know, I'm like, okay, I don't know you, but you know, I kind of get what kind of stories you are. So for this episode, I figured that I should really correct this and read it, which makes it extra intimidating because if I end up not liking this, then I'm going to have to re-examine like, you know, all my last few years of my reading life and my reading choices. So what I picked for you today, also a Latin American offer, it is Ficciones by Jorge Luis Borges. This particular edition translated by a number of different uh, translators. And there's 17 stories in this book. And this collection is actually written after an almost fatal accident that Borges has. 
when he recovered, he was trying to write these stories right away to basically kind of to prove that he's still sane, that he can still create. Jorge Luis Borges, born in Argentina, then lived later on in Switzerland and Spain. He's fluent both in English and Spanish. He's a poet. He's a short story writer. He's an essayist. He's a translator. Apparently, he translated one of Oscar Wilde's story at the age of 13. And he's also a librarian. You know, he was the director of the National Library of Argentina for nine years, I believe. Apparently, he finished his work so so quickly, his librarian works so quickly, that he has time to go and read and just translate books, you know, when he was on the job. He was completely blind at the age of 55. Just like his father, there were some illnesses in his family, and he went blind at the age of 55. And so that, of course, affected a lot of his literary life. It's intimidating to try to explain Borges in five, ten minutes. And I don't think I would be able to do it. I think that was one of the themes that I hear from everybody today, which is like, I don't know, I'm doing a good job explaining. I can tell you that I'm not going to be able to really explain this very well. But And I think about like, well, how am I supposed to talk about his books? And I thought I would maybe describe sort of the book as a whole and maybe my my first reading experience, because I feel like this is definitely something I want to revisit um, now that I'm a little bit more prepared. Um, about what to expect, I guess. And I was definitely right to be intimidated because this is like a very challenging book. It is unlike any short stories that I have read before. And I would probably say I question for some of them, like whether it is even a short story. It feels very much like an essay almost. And when we are always debating this whole character versus plot kind of thing, well, let me maybe introduce another type. Maybe this is not character, not plot and I would say probably it's like well like an idea driven or maybe a thought driven kind of story or essay because it's it feels very much everything else is kind of like incidental it doesn't really matter but it's the key to it is sort of the ideas that Borges is trying to explore and it was definitely the case of like okay I have no idea what's happening in many cases or like I'm like I'm not smart enough to understand this this is like a mark thing like I, I don't think I can get it it was difficult but I think it was really really interesting because it was remarkable how much I think my reading experience aligns with some of those central themes in this collection. Um, One of them being sort of basically like, what is reality? What is time, you know, like, and every time I I kind of feel like, oh, okay, I think this is something I can hang on to, that I feel like I have got something tangible, that I'm standing on like solid ground, then it just sort of slips away from me immediately. Like this, like really, really hard to pinpoint what it is that I am reading in some cases. And it's interesting how Borges throws in a lot of like factual information. He would mix like real authors. He would he would talk about real works, like he would refer to like Don Quixote, or he will talk about Edgar Allan Poe in his books, in his stories. And then he'll mix it up with like other kind of like fake authors that he made up and and list of books that those authors have written and and really interesting juxtaposition of like the the real and the not real really makes you question like what is reality like what is actually true in one of the stories is called the self which is the last story probably one of my favorite in the collection it's about this person who has a family ranch that he owns in Argentina. He has never been there, but he has always aspired to be a gaucho. He wants to be this like, basically like an Argentinian cowboy. And so one day he was reading and he got a copy of A Thousand and One Nights and he was so into reading it that he hit himself on the way up the stairs to his apartment. And that's exactly kind of what happened to Borges himself. Like he actually also hit his head while running up the stairs one time. And he got so sick 
that he was sent to a sanatorium and he spent like many furious days there, like, you know, having all these doctors like poking at him and things like that. And then when he got out, they they suggested, oh, maybe you should go like breast. And he thought, oh yeah, perfect. This is the time I should go to my ranch. So he took the train there and the train was weird because it won't stop where he's supposed to stop. And then he was told by the conductor that he has to get off, like at a stop ahead of time. And then while he was trying to get to where he wants to go, he stopped at a local diner and these locals who were like, you know, harassing him. And so they ended up in a knife fight and he probably ended up dying from the knife fight. But then at the end, he was like, oh yeah, but this is like the the death that I imagined. At that point, you're like, okay, well, did he did he actually die? Or like, did he actually still in the sanatorium? And he's just thinking about all this, you know, and it's so, so this whole idea of like kind of different ways you can sort of read a story, the reality that you think is real, is it really real or is this something you imagine? Another story, same thing, called The Circular Runes, which is a quote from Alice in Wonderland about a man who arrive at a temple that is dedicated to some like forgotten fire god. And so he was there and he dreams the existence of this other human being. Um, So he created this other person. He was preparing this person to go to the world. And when he did send him off, the temple caught on fire. He was inside the temple, but he realized that he does not feel the fire. He does not feel the heat. And then he started realizing, wait, maybe I am also dreamt up by someone else. The first story in the in the collection where they think it's supposed to be Borges himself and his friend, they were like talking one day and his friend mentioned this quote that he has heard. Mirrors and copulation are abominable since they both multiply the numbers of men. And Borges really wanted to know like where this quote came from and his friend was like, oh yeah, I read it and it's from this particular country. But Borges has never heard of this country before. And so his friend's like, where, where did you find this country? There's no reference to this country, like never mentioned in any books. And his friend was like, oh, you know, I find it in an encyclopedia. And eventually they discover it from this some sort of knockoff encyclopedia that mentioned this country and then leads them to discover, in fact, it's actually not a country, it's actually a whole planet. And part of the planet, the language they don't use nouns, they only use adjectives to explain things. So it just turned into this whole like in their attempt to try to locate this planet or find out more about it, you know, find out sort of like the story behind it. A lot of it is just questioning this sort of reality. And the other big idea, which again, feels very much like my reading experience was, you know, everything is sort of like connected that, you know, you are you as a person, but you're also everyone else. Everything is infinite and all of that. And it feels very, very much like every story that I'm reading because every story I read it feeds into what I read previously, but it also feeds into what I read like next. And it it really helps me to understand and, and helping to go back and forth to get to really understand what each story is trying to tell me. And I feel very much like I can't have one without the other. And I have never really read a collection that has such a strong sense of unifying theme that really, you know, every single story contributes to this bigger picture. One of my favorite stories in the collection is probably Garden of Forking Paths. It's about a Chinese spy who works for the German government during the war. And he has discovered where the attack is going to be um, by the British. And so he wanted to tell his government, he wanted to alert them to it. But he found that his handler has been compromised. So he has to find another way to alert his government. And 
somehow, and you'll find out at the end of the story why, but he ended up randomly visiting this specific British person. And he went to his house and the other person thought he was someone else because he's a spy. So they got to talking. And it turns out that this person has a copy of a book that was actually written by one of the spy's ancestor. And he knows that his ancestor was trying to create a labyrinth. But what he didn't realize is that the labyrinth is not a physical labyrinth, but a labyrinth in the book. And how, as he tried to understand this book, he realized that, well, the book doesn't make sense because you have characters in the second chapter, they would die. And then in the third chapter, they came back. Like everything is all like out of order. Everything makes like absolutely no sense. And then he realized that that's where the labyrinth is, because in this one book, it contains all the versions of possible things that could happen. Each action creates another multiple versions. And at one point, he feel like when he was reading the book, the house is full of these invisible people, all the different versions of the same person that is crowding him and he feels suffocated in it. The other British person was like, oh, yeah, it's just like us, you know, like in this life. I could be your friend or maybe I could be your enemy. And then it's just sort of start off this many, many, many multiple paths. Somebody compared them to kind of looking at a MC Escher drawing. When you focus on like individual elements, it seems to make sense, but you start to lose it when you start like expanding out and try to look at the full picture and, and it's impossible to figure out what's happened. And that's kind of a little bit like how I feel about these books. It was one of those things I keep waking up in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh, maybe that's what it is. And then of course, like the next morning when I wake up, I'm like, what did I, what did I figure out again? When I was, when I was like half dreaming, half asleep, you know, and I, I can't quite get a handle on it. That's kind of how I feel like with, with this book. The other thing is like, thankfully, I have my e-reader because I don't know how many times I have to use that dictionary fi- function to like figure out the words. It's been a while because I think when you are learning a language, one of the stages is when you realize that, oh yeah, I don't know all the words, but you can figure out from the context what the words mean and you feel like accomplished that like, okay, I move on to a, a, a different stage of like language acquisition. Um, I feel like in this one, I'm just like going backwards because I'm just like so many times I'm like, oh, there's no no context here to help me figure out what these words mean. Um, so thank you for Ye Reader for like having those those dictionary in there. But yeah, like that's definitely a book that I I'm I'm glad I I read and I'm glad I finally can say that I have read a Jorge Luis Borges book. It will definitely require a second reading and a third reading and probably more because I think now that I have some maybe some sense of what it is, I feel like I can go back and then use the things that I have kind of maybe figured out or maybe not figured out to try to help me understand the, the stories in this. Um, yeah, and he's such a prolific writer too. He he does a lot of like essays and, and nonfiction also. So I'm going to have to tackle that at one point. But it's definitely someone who really, really loves books, loves literature, and loves philosophy, loves all the metaphysical stuff. And it is someone that I, I think is quite is so different from what I read and again, so influential in Latin American literature. So I am looking forward to rereading this already. It's about 180 pages. It's a very short book, but it takes forever to read. I think partly because it's just so different and the ideas are so difficult to grasp in some way, um, but I will give it another try. So um, if you are also, you know, curious about what someone who is like a literary giant in not just in Latin American literature, but also in world literature, I think I would encourage you to check out Ficciones by Jorge Luis Borges. Thank you, Virginia. I love Ficciones by Borges. It's probably one of my favorite short story collections, but um, yeah, it is it is labyrinthine. It is 
the language is so so much (laughs) and that is all the time we have for today so thank you everyone for joining us as we discuss books that intimidate us here on uh keep it fictional and until next time we will see you soon and keep reading thank you for listening if you like our show please tell a fellow book lover about it you can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm